and welcome to Where the White Coats Come Off podcast, a podcast all about physician assistants and what it's really all about as a PA. We are Katie and Beth, and thank you so much for joining us. Here is part two with sexual medicine expert PA Elise Fosnight with all the details about the sexual medicine specialty and owning a practice as a PA. How did you decide to open up your own practice? So I got into my first year of being in urology, um, and this was, again, kind of eye-opening, right? I had a more of a focus on female sexual health, female urology, um, coming out of PA school, but the practice that this urologist was at was 85% men. So here I am now loving the penises and prostates too, and, and recognizing that this was an opportunity for me to bring more awareness. So I was having guys come in who were asking, you know, for Viagra and Cialis. And so, right, it's my due diligence to say, well, can you tell me more about why you're wanting to use this? Is this for self-play, partner play? What are you wanting to do? And they're like, I'm married. I'm going to be using it with my wife. Okay, that's great. Does she know that you're here? Well, no. Okay. Have you had a conversation with her? Do you know how she is functioning sexually? Like, let's have this conversation. I don't want to be that, you know, on the other end of the phone call of the angry wife going, why are you giving my husband Viagra? <laughs> but again, I'm, you know, trying to be a women's health advocate um, and bringing up again the importance that women are not objects just to be had, that they are part of the play too. And so, you know, he was like, oh, no, I've not. I had that conversation. I said, you probably should have that conversation before I write you this prescription. So that was like one of my first sex counseling experiences. Yeah. Um, recognizing that I needed more, right? Still PA does not necessarily prepare you for all of those experiences that you're going to have with patients. So that's sure. why we do continuing education. We do conferences. You're always just learning more. So one of the cool things, when I was down in Atlanta for the AAPA conference, I had gotten one of the drug reps information, and she said, you know, if you're still interested in sexual health, check out this Michigan program. So I called her up, sent her an email, and I said, tell me more. Like, what, what do you mean this Michigan program? So the University of Michigan has a postgraduate certificate program in sex therapy, sex counseling, and sex education. Oh. They're one of the only ones in the country that are affiliated with, an, with a, like a university higher academic institution. Until January of 2022, because I am going to be co-directing <gasps> the Emory Sexual Health Certificate Program. Oh, congratulations! Oh, that is so exciting, Elise. You really are like pushing this into the next decade. This is awesome. Uh, yeah. I had looked into their program, looked all online, had reached out to a couple of the, the faculty that were uh, involved in that. I thought, oh my gosh. This is exactly what I want to do. I was a peer mediator all the way from fourth grade through high school. So, you know, doing conflict resolution, having conversations with both parties. I love that counseling aspect. And I am my grandfather's granddaughter and the fact that I've never met a stranger. He never met one either. We would be in the middle of the grocery store and he's just chatting with somebody be like, oh, hey, grandpa, who was that? And he's like, I don't know. We just met. <laughs> so, you know, he's just always had this, this love for conversation. This is something that we have to have a lot more about. So I recognized that Michigan was kind of where I wanted to go. So I applied there. I was about, I guess, I don't know, maybe 18 months in of being a PA when I applied to the program because it was 2000. Um, in 13 when I got in. So yeah, that would be about right. And so got into the program and it was everything I had hoped and dreamed for. So it was about 15 months. Um, I did the counseling track and the educator track. Typically, um, medical providers are in the counseling track, right? We, unless you are mm -hmm. sort of like PA or something like that, I'm not doing a whole bunch of mental health, cognitive behavioral therapies, although we touch on it a little bit on the counseling side, but just being able to really educate my patients more and empower them uh, with the tools to have more pleasure, more love for their body, and that sort of thing. So um, I went through that, and when I got done, 
So I finished the program, came back, and I said, okay, I really want to start a more account into the urology track. They had the support of my supervising physician at the time, and he said, go for it, at least whatever you want to do. So I talked to the marketing and advertising people and said, what can we do to get this out to the community to let us know, let them know that we have this service here? And at that point, too, right, we're in this nice little Bible-belted area. And so saying sex or orgasm in the title of the program was just not... <laughs> It's not going to fly. And so I had to um, make it interesting, like how to keep it hot when it's not, um, were some of the, the titles, um, you know, intimacy without intercourse. I was seeing a lot of um, breast and GYN patients, right, who were really struggling with body image and sexuality. And then prostate cancer patients, right, were struggling with ED. And so and I talked to a lot of the family medicine providers also in the area just to get those referrals, right? Like, who, how are you talking, you know, to your patients? And of course, none of them are talking to them. So I made a kind of generic brief sexual contact list for them, four questions, right? Like, are you having any sexual problems today? Yes. You know, what are they? You can always list it out. Do you want to talk to somebody about it? Here's the referral. That's what I was telling my family, my family docs um, and my family uh, medicine PAs was like, you don't have to have that conversation with them. You need to at least ask and say, hey, there is this person just down the street that would love to talk to you about this. I think the biggest thing, too, with my hospital institution was how are we going to charge for this? And it's, it's a no-brainer. It's still office visits. There's no special code for me to you know put in there. And it's kind of some talk therapy, right? Like you're just doing a conversation and educating, just like I would educate somebody on kidney stone prevention or their a prostate cancer risk the same thing. So you're just decoding it exactly the same. Slowly but surely, I just started, you know, having more and more referrals. The community was getting to know me a little bit more. And I was kind of known as like, you know, the Dr. Ruth of Brevard. Um, so cute. Um, I had lots of, lots of people coming in and asking questions. And so I had two, um, 55-year-old man, invasive uh, prostate cancer, had a radical prostate cancer. I had developed a penile rehab program for those individuals. And so my physician said, I want you to go see Elise and let's go ahead and start implementing this because within 12 to 18 months, those are those key timeframes after surgery in order to maximize blood flow, nerve regrowth, um, muscle regeneration, a lot of those guys have incontinence issues that we really wanted to like streamline this. So I had put him into my, my program and I kept following him up, you know, through that whole year. And after about, I guess it was about you know, 12 or 13 months, right over a year, where he was starting to have spontaneous erections on his own. And so he was like, at least I'm just going to continue with you to do my, you know, routine PSA checks, whatever else. I was like, sure, we can totally do that. So we had been doing that for several times, and he got to, he, obviously he knew my love for um, sex and sexual medicine. And he said, Elise, what do you want to what do you want to do when you grow up? And I was like, that's a good question. Um, I was about, I guess that's six ish years now of being out of PA school. And um, I said, you know, I really want to have this interdisciplinary center because I learned so much when I went through Michigan's program that it's a biopsychosocial model, right? So it's not just me as a medical provider, but I need my pelvic PT, I need my sex therapist, I need my educator, my nutritionist, I need my acupuncturist, I need the whole team to be able to take care of this patient. And so I said, I would love to have a center where we have all of that underneath one roof. Like, how cool would that be for all of us to work collectively together to take care of this one patient? But I was like, I'm too young. I'm too early on in my career. I can't do this. And he said, Elise, I'm a businessman. I have had 27 businesses, something like that, some crazy amount of businesses that he started and helped, helped start. He said, give me a business plan, and let's talk about this. I think it's done. 
floor. Like I was like, oh my gosh, she has another opportunity being presented in front of me. I, I literally called my husband as soon as I got out. Business plan? How do you write a business plan? <laughs> they didn't tell you that in PA school. <laughs> no. <laughs> so what do you do? You Google business plan. Yep. So I Googled, you know, how to do a business, how to do a healthcare business plan. You know, that was the other thing. You know, how you do this. And at that time, I mean, you know, we don't know that many healthcare providers, people like physicians that own their own practice anymore, right? They're being bought up all my hospital institutions. So um, so I Googled it, had all of this, you know, like passion and heart in my brain and my soul. And I just word vomited it into a Word document, you know, made it pretty. And then we're not my forte put it in how I thought it should be and I was like went over it had my mom read it a couple of other people read it and gave it to him and he read through it and, and he laughed and I cried oh gosh how do I do this then so I found um, a local place in Asheville that helps with small businesses it was a business 101 class so what do you do you should go back to the basics there was a six-week course we met three hours every week something like that and we went step by step through the process cash flow, overhead, marketing, advertising, um, who's your competition, you know, all of these certain things and got, got it together and got my business plan. Excel sheeted it. Goodness gracious. I know so many algorithms now in Excel. It's just ridiculous. So I got it together. I actually got a business coach and because that was, you know, one of the things I, I needed more than just that six weeks class, right? I needed a business I need somebody who was going to be supporting me that I could meet every couple of weeks to go over and fine tune everything because right now I have this, this raw business plan I'm fine tuning it, but what, what am I going to do with it? What's my next step? You know, that was like, that was the thing of trying to think about it and like leaving my job and opening up. Oh my goodness. So scary, right? Yes. I mean, terrifying, but so exciting at the same time. Adrenaline that just kind of overcome all of like the nerves and the scared and everything else. And we knew we wanted to finish having our family. So I have three girls, um, six, four, and two. And when I was, so I'm doing all of this. I was, had just had my, oh, I guess she was about a year old, my um, second um, daughter. And when I had started this business class, like, right, I'm still breastfeeding. I'm, like, pumping in the middle of class. <laughs> one hand on the keyboard, one hand on the baby. You do what you got to do. And so, um, but again, we knew we wanted at least one more baby. I kept, like, you know, kind of going and fine-tuning the, the business plan. And, and in Asheville, it's really difficult to actually um, find a space, right? Like, that was the other thing. Too. In order for me to get a small business loan, I had to have a space. I had a contractor. But I couldn't get, a, you know, that contractor or that space unless the my landlord knew that I had funds but I couldn't get funds until like this was like my big back and forth it was crazy and so um, I had our third child so I had finalized my business plan everything right as I was going on maternity leave with my third child because I thought this is it while I'm on maternity leave I want to find a space I want to get this going like we're going to do all of it and so that's what I did with her in tow. Like, I was just driving around, I know, with faces. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Most people sleep when they're on maternity leave. Maybe. Maybe. Like, you're just sleep-deprived anyway from the class, too. So you just roll with the plot. But I will say, no, I have an amazing support system when it comes to having a family. So um, my husband is amazing and wonderful. My mom lives for houses down the street. It's just I have this amazing support team um, who loves my family, but also supports me and my goals and my dreams and didn't make me choose, which that's, I hear that so often and you shouldn't have to choose. So for those of you listening that want a family and want a parent and do all of that, 
you can totally do it. You just got to have all of your systems in play because you cannot do it all by yourself, nor should you do it all by yourself. When we talk about like me hiring my staff and everything else, I am, it's called the False Night Center, but it is not a one person show. Like it is my whole staff and my team. I don't, I don't, I see a patient. I come up with the ideas and I oversee things, but I have somebody that does my billing and my claims that schedules appointments. And you know, like I can't do that all by myself. With third baby in tow, driving around Asheville trying to find a space, found a location, called up the landlord, right? I got the baby in the sling, you know, we're walking through the space. And I loved it. Like, it was just perfect. Um, and my, um, my brother is an architect, and he helped to design the space, which is pretty awesome. Um, so we did all of that. And so this was, goodness, she was born. She'll be two next week. It's so crazy. I found the space in August of 2019. Again, trying to get find the lease, negotiate, go back and forth, make sure I get the small business loan. So fast forward like six months when all of the lawyers went on like a two-week hiatus during the holidays. And I was like, wait a minute. I thought we were going to be able to sign this lease and everything else. I'm ready. I'm ready. Like, let's do this. So come January, finalizing everything, I knew everything was coming down the pipeline. So February of 26th, because it's my grandmother's birthday, and I did that for a reason. Last night is not the last name that I was born with. My parents got divorced when I was nine don't have a really good relationship with my dad. So when I turned 18, I thought, I don't want his last name tied to all of my achievements. And so you can legally only change your name once. Getting married and things like that is a little bit different. On the female side of things, did some research. Researched my grandfather's um, last name, which was my mom's maiden name, which is Villanoa, uh, which the Villanoa Center does not sound as cool as Fosnite Center. <laughs> Fosnite. And I was like, oh, I love that. I don't know. You know, like, I, I would write it out, at least Renee Fosnite or, you know, whatever else and play with it. Like, does this sound good? Whatever else. And it did. It just resonated with me. So on my 18th birthday, that was my present to myself. And it was Renee Fosnite when we got married. And so during, you know, the whole time with my business coach, right? Like, what do I name my business? You know, what do we do? And of course, I dream big. So I didn't want to regionalize it with like Western North Carolina Health Center or, you know, something like that. Yeah, smart. I, re- I remember specifically her and I sitting down at one coaching session and going, it, am I allowed to name it like the Fosnite Center? And she was like, hell yeah, you are. <laughs> like put it on print. We put it in like a semi logo, whatever else. I was like, it looks so amazing. I have to do this, you know? And so it was really awesome that I had that support and everything else, you know, to call it like the Fosnite Center. So when I said like, I turned my notice in, on February 26th, that's my grandmother's birthday. It's the boss night name. Like there was a whole purpose and meaning to it. So, right. And that was about 20 days before COVID hit. Right? I was just thinking that. <laughs> just thinking that. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And I'll never forget because, um, again, I put my notice in on February 26th. So I had a 90 day notice. And I knew that I was signing this lease. I was getting construction together, that we were probably, we were trying to open and like, I think it was like maybe around the end of May was the time that we were going to try to open. So I knew I had that 90-day window that I had to get my notice in in order for me to open my my business doors. And so I um, turned that notice in and then had flown um, to Orlando the early March for a conference. And I remember sitting in that conference to literally signing the lease as we're like, I don't even remember who was presenting or whatever else because I was signing the lease. It was so exciting. And like I said, this was just the cusp of COVID where, you know, we really weren't sure what was going on or whatever else flew back and like yeah 10 days later everything is shut down I'm like oh my god what have I just done 
Yeah. Yeah. So scary. Right. So I thought, okay, this is all happening for a reason. I'm supposed to do this. I meant to do this. A little COVID's not going to scare me away and whatever else. But I really do think that if I had waited, if I had waited to put in my notice, I don't know if I would have done it or I would have really delayed it and then had this space paying rent with no patients in there or anything else. So again, I'm you know, a firm believer that everything happened for a reason. Yeah, it's like you had this insane moment of courage, insane moment of courage to quit your job and security and what all everybody tells you in life, get a job, work for someone, your 401k, and so you have this insane amount of courage to push, go, put in this, to start your dream, and that's what it took. And I think that that is what sets you apart from a lot of other people, is it takes so much courage to leap off that. I mean, more than people can even think until you're in that position to do that, because there's probably a thousand other people who would love to go and start and maybe even create a business plan, but they don't have that moment like that you have where you're like, I'm just gonna do it. If it's not now, it's never. And that I just think that that is so inspiring because you, you did it messy, you did it scared, you know, you didn't do it perfect. And like, look, here you are, you're living your dream now. And so it doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be, you know, there's never a, a, a perfect time for it. It's always going to feel like you're jumping off the ledge, but you just have to do it anyways. And so one of our uh, favorite business mentors says everything happens for you, not to you. And like everything that you just described embodies that. Yes, very, yes, very much so. Yeah. And so, you know, I think that that's that, where that courage comes from. Remember, we, we talked about that why before. I don't. I don't think I did not mention this, know this. So after that patient had put that little seed in my brain, like, oh, you can do this, start start that, you know, sexual health center. I actually approached my hospital and said, I have this really cool idea. I think we can do this. Nobody else is doing it in the area. And I quote, they said they did not see the value in it. So, mm, yeah. Whoa. I can imagine your face when you heard that. First of all, you don't tell Elise that she can't do something. Like, that's just not a question. And I just, I remember feeling, like, let down by my institution who I thought had my back and supported me. But at the same time, really liberated the thought, screw it. I'm going to show them that this is worth it and that there is a need for this in in our area. Yeah. So you're like, I'm going to do it my way. I don't need your backing. I don't need your permission. I don't need your believing in me because I believe in myself and I know there is value in this and I know people need it. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I love that. I love it because again, it takes so much courage when the institution you're working for and this multi-million dollar hospital is like, no, I don't think that's going to work. Like no one wants that. And you're like, no, but I know, like I know my patients. And I think that's the difference is that you literally have been in your community for six years. You've done all this counseling. You've talked to these people. You know your patients. I mean, one of your patients is the one who like told you to start the business in the first place. Like you can't get any more like, this is needed than that. Yes, exactly, exactly. So it's been fun this past year proving them wrong. (laughs) So because we just celebrated my one year, um, we had a big celebration yesterday. Congratulations. Thank you so much. You know, and that's that first year of business, right? It's going to be the, is the toughest. Um, We had ups, we had downs. Oh, listen, dealing with insurance companies. So I had started the whole credentialing process, November of 2019, of knowing, okay, we're going to open middle of 2020 or early 2020, and wanted to get the ball rolling, known that, you know, they always said Blue Cross Blue Shield is going to take you three to six months to get um, credentialed with. I'm like, okay, that's no big deal. I'm going to do it now. We're going to do it all early and everything else. Um, But it wasn't until September of 
2020 when we finally got credentialed with Blue Cross Blue Shield. Wow. Yeah, and that was another thing too, is like as a healthcare provider, do you take insurance? I had so many other sexual medicine practices that were doing concierge, that were doing cash-based systems. And I was like, no, I want access. I want access to care. I don't want somebody that can afford to make their sex better coming in because everybody should deserve good sex. I know that was a, a huge um, decision. So right now, like that was a learning curve. How do you get yourself credentialed? <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> I have spent crazy amounts of hours on the phone with insurance companies um, of trying to figure this whole thing out. And, you know, bless my mama, too, because she's been in the medical field for 46 years. She's done everything, by, you know, by being an MA, a medical billing coding person, surgery scheduler, a front desk worker. So, like, she's the guru. So she was super instrumental in helping me through this whole process, too. Having somebody like that that has that medical knowledge and understands a little bit about what the step-by-step -step process actually is. I mean, I still call her up or send her a text, like, hey, how did how did you order that next one on? What, what did you do? <laughs> you remember? So true, though. It's a little thing sometimes. And that's the thing they teach you. You know how to practice medicine, but you have to learn all of it. You have to learn how to hire employees and how to deal with IT and then... Marketing. Uh, market, oh, marketing. <laughs> yeah. And that was, you know, that was, you know, the other thing, too, right? Being in, in a specialty that is very stigmatized, very shamed, very taboo. Yeah. You know, what do you put on there? And it was, again, it was really important for me to have Boss Night Center for sexual health on there. But at the same time, like our website is bossnightcenter.com. Again, I wanted it to be still okay for people to look up, you know, if they were still struggling with the fact that like sex is a dirty word for them or it's shameful or it's embarrassing. So again, really tried to keep it. But some things I was like, no, I don't want somebody to go, well, what's the Boss Night Center? You know, and not know exactly what it is. So I kept it on my door. My landlord um, is a family dentist and he's right next door. And so he's like, I really want you to take sexual health down, you know, because I'm a family. I'm like, no, this is this is my business. It's not just Boston Center. It's for sexual health. And maybe that's an opportunity for that person walking in to go, maybe I should reach out next door or, you know, having those kind of questions um, or an opportunity to talk to your kid about it. My goodness, my six and four-year-old know their vulvas, I think, better than a lot of my 45-year-old patients do. I think it's crazy that sexual health, which to me sounds very medical, is still something that people are uncomfortable with. So you still had to, you know, change it to fossnightcenter.com to so the people who might be uncomfortable typing in sexual health could still get there and still like feel like they're able to use those resources. Because to me that it just has such a medical connotation. It's maybe because we're in the medical field and nothing is taboo when we talk with our patients. Mm -hmm. But the fact that like the phrase sexual health is still something that people feel weird about, that's crazy yeah. to me. I mean it's 2021, right? Yeah, well, and we have all of these articles that talk about when a penis owner, when a man presents with ED, like that's a microvascular disease, which means that his macrovascular system, it, there's something wrong with it, right? We know that that's actually the number one sign for coronary artery disease. So it's like, but we, and we need to be working up these guys and send them to cardiologists or making sure they're family medicine, you know, um, people are having those right conversations. On the flip side, we know that the number one killer of women is heart disease, right? But again, are we asking our women, are they becoming fully aroused? Are they having any, again, erectile issues? The clitoris has erectile tissue. Are you able to get fully aroused? How does that, because again, that's a microvascular issue that leads to heart questions, but we're not having those conversations. So we know that the, the blood vessel issue too, right, has, has great implications of what else is going on in their system. 
we're not having those conversations. So, and I've seen peripheral neuropathy in the genitals on my diabetic patients, pelvic pain. Oh my goodness gracious. Talk about pelvic pain. There's a lot of pelvic pain out there. And 43% of women across the board have some sort of sexual dysfunction, only 33% of men. Wow. So almost half of women have something. And, you know, think about it. This is probably a lot of them don't even know, or they think that, you know, that can apply to me. There's no treatment for that. That's just the way it is. Because I guess the patient education isn't out there. So I love the fact that you're, you are changing this. So, you know, you're, you're starting this program with Emory and you've got this Boston Center for Sexual Health that hopefully, you know, will have satellite clinics and, and kind of be known for that. I think that's fantastic because a lot of times they tell us all the time in school about patient education. Get the stuff out there so patients understand and they can take control of their own health and be empowered by it. But how can they do that if they don't even know that there's something out there for them? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, our, our center, too, is very prevention-focused, which I think all places are, right? We, and in medicine, we do think about that. So we want to prevent colon cancer. So we do colonoscopies and breast screening. You know, we do breast cancer, you know, screenings, the mammographies or breast ultrasounds. You know, we don't prevent that first heart or that heart attack after you've had your first one. So when I see a lot of women who are struggling with vaginal dryness, pelvic pain issues, that genitourinary syndrome of menopause and the loss of hormones in their genitals set up shop 10 years ago. But nobody's asking those questions. Nobody's saying, hey, we can go ahead and do a little bit of hormone cream today. And you do it maybe once or twice a week to prevent you from having issues later on down the road. You know, that causes a lot of urinary symptoms, urinary tract infections, urgency, stress incontinence because of the thinning of the tissues. We know this. This is happening. So why are we not preventing it? from happening. I want to go out of business because we are doing such a really good job with educating the patient and the medical community about these things beforehand. Actually, to be honest, I never even thought about prevention when it comes to, like, as you said, like uh, sexual dysfunction in women and stuff. But that's, that's really, it's interesting because you're right. We talk about prevention with all kinds of chronic diseases. Why are we not talking about prevention when it comes to this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And that was one of the things I took away from my urogynecology rotation over in England too, right? Pelvic floor physical therapy is huge over there. Every female, six weeks postpartum, whether you had a vaginal delivery or a C-section, gets physical therapy. You go, those hips, and I know firsthand, having three babies, how essential pelvic PT is. So I, I got to have that experience, and I don't share that with all of my patients, but I do share it with, with quite a bit. And I I think that that helps to find that connection and to let your patients know that this, this really is a true thing, right? I think that, you know, sometimes we give exercises or diet modifications to patients and like, you have no idea what this, you know, and I'm like, yeah, I do. I totally get it because I've been there. Yeah. I know what pelvic PT can do. My SI joints were just out of whack and I'm, I have a short torso so to carry and I had seven, eight, nine pound babies. Like, they were I remember all. that your husband was really tall, right? He is, or so he's 6'2", yes. Yeah. And my my last baby, Abigail, was a week early and 9 pounds, 5 ounces. So, I mean, oh. I didn't have gestational diabetes, perfect, healthy pregnancies. I gained the normal weight, but I should have, and all of that stuff. I exercised up until the day I had all three of them. I, I just rode big babies. <laughs> yeah, and so, you know, those are the types of things that I really recognize. Like, I, I need to do better for myself, right? Self-care is really important, too, especially in this profession and having a good balance. But I was like, I need to do this for myself, too. Not just, again, for me, but to share to my patients, too, the importance of this also. Yeah, it's a lot more powerful when you can say, I've been there. Like, I've done that. Not just I know what I'm talking about, but, like, no, I have been in your shoes. 
this is what works or or just even just i understand like it's nothing to be ashamed about it's nothing to you know be afraid to tell me like i understand because i've been there too i've had big babies i've had these problems i've you know myself i've whatever it is like and i just think that making that connection makes you're right makes them believe you a little bit more makes them think that you have empathy and sympathy for them and then they're more likely to i think follow through with their plan of care if they really think that it's 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 individualized to them. It's not just something that you just kind of wrote out of the book and like here and give it to everybody. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. So that's one of the things I'm really trying hard. Again, prevention, right? Because we know that these European um, countries have less incontinence and less pelvic organ prolapse than what we do here in the United States. So, you know, and there's lots of contributing factors that go along with that. But I think that if we could implement those techniques and those tools early on to empower, again, our women, well, and so many women, again, have painful sex after a baby. And I mean, my goodness, talk about vaginal dryness, especially if you're breastfeeding, that's that's still putting you into like a pseudo-menopause state. So why are we not using local hormone creams for women that are breastfeeding? It doesn't get absorbed systemically. And if you can make things feel better, why are we not making things feel better? Uh, And if we can get rid of this whole six-week mark and you're okay, like wink, wink, nod, nod, yeah, you're okay. And I'm like, absolutely not. There's a whole mental component that goes into just because maybe your body is ready doesn't mean you are ready. Um, There's this wonderful book called Come As You Are um, by Emily Nagowski, and she talks a lot about um, female low libido and female arousal stuff and, you know, in what we call um, genital non-concordance which means that you can be totally turned on in your head, but your body is not responding the same way. So a lot of women, you know, think if they're, uh, they've got vaginal dryness or something like that, that they're not maybe turned on to their partner if your body's not responding. But it has nothing to do with that. You may be on antihistamines because there's horrible seasonal allergies, and that's causing vaginal dryness. You may be on oral contraceptives, and that's causing vaginal dryness. Uh, and, and then even just because you're wet or you have vaginal lubrication does not mean you're turned on. It may be sexually relevant. You're watching a really arousing commercial or um, something like that. And, you know, it's just you have to have more of those conversations. And so, you know, it's just, again, it's the education piece of it and, and just having those conversations. And, you know, what works the best for you is not always going to work best for somebody else. I just love the fact that not only are you passionate about your subject, you are one of the innovators that are pushing it to the future. Um, you're a PA, and so, again, you're advocating for the PA profession, and that you are willing to talk about things that a lot of people aren't willing to talk about, and you took this niche that so many people said, no, we don't need that, I don't know, I feel uncomfortable, and you open it up to the world, and now we have our own clinic, and we're starting this program at Emory. Like, you are just on the track up, and I love that you're advocating for women and for sexual health and for all these things that have been neglected for too many years, and so we are so grateful and so thankful for you to share your wisdom with us. Yes, thank Um, you. Yes. Thank you so much for listening. We are pre-PA clinic and are here to help you get into PA school and then get through PA school. If these episodes are helpful for you, we would be so grateful if you would subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also, if you need help applying to PA school, check out the episode notes. The application to acceptance course is amazing and filled with all the tips and expert advice that we have learned in our years of working at PA programs. We are so excited for your future and are here to help you get into PA school and then get through PA school. Thank you again for listening.